Well, thank you for that kind introduction, and thank you to the World Affairs Council for giving me this opportunity to speak with you this morning, and thank you all for being here on a uh, beautiful uh, Saturday morning. This talk is about Indonesia, but I'm going to start with a small anecdote about Turkey. Uh, recently, a friend of mine was preparing to go on a trip to Turkey, and we got talking. She had heard about how the ruling party in Turkey uh, was now encouraging women to wear headscarves in public spaces, and she didn't like the sound of it at all. Like many Americans, she saw the headscarf as a symbol of uh, religious oppression and misogyny. And uh, she thought that it was a worrisome sign that Turkey, uh, a country that is an American ally and that has a strong secular tradition uh, in politics in the past, uh, now seemed to be taking an Islamic turn. To her, it seemed like it was yet another sign that America uh, is losing the battle for hearts and minds uh, on the international front. Now, not long after that conversation, I came across this photo on the internet, and you have a copy of it in the papers that um, have been distributed to you. It shows a woman in a headscarf, but everything about this picture suggests something quite different from what my friend was worrying about. She is an Indonesian woman. This picture was taken at a polling station just last month during Indonesia's presidential election. But she's not just a voter or a representative for an Islamic party. She is a poll worker. She was there to help preserve the integrity of the voting process. Presumably, she believes strongly enough in the democratic process to want to be an intimate part of it. In addition, she's wearing an unusual dress. It's hard to see in the photo. If you look really closely, you might just make out that printed on it is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's not something we associate with women's subordination or religious dictatorship. So how do you reconcile this picture with the image that my friend had in her mind about women in headscarves? I think the answer goes something like this. In this country, we have a dominant narrative about Islam and politics, that Islamic values are, incompa are incompatible with democracy and human rights. It's easy to zoom in on one visible symbol of Islam, like headscarves, for example, and react to it in a somewhat knee-jerk fashion. We forget that religious symbols can be multi-layered, and they are even more complicated when they get thrown into another very complex arena, politics. The photo of the Indonesian poll worker encapsulates that. For us, looking out of the United States, Islam is usually seen through a series of discrete images and incidents. The mass media use short sound bites to explain things, and things usually come across as black and white. And since 9-11, we often see the Muslim world through the lenses of deeply rooted cultural conflict, or the clash of civilizations, as Huntington, Samuel Huntington famously called it. We think in terms of us versus them. So when we see a headscarf, we think they are about the control and oppression of women, we are about emancipation, freedom, equality. And then when we see mass protests, as we've seen in Iran recently, we think the demonstrators must represent the forces of democratic secularism, which we should support, against the forces of religious fanaticism, which we must oppose. And then when there are terrorist bombings, we think clearly another strike by Islamic radicals who hate everything we stand for, and we have to fight them with everything we've got. This tendency to think in terms of a dichotomy is dangerous because we start to think of the other side as monolithic. 
We fail to look more carefully at their histories and at their politics. And I mean politics as a process of contestation, a dynamic process in which actors influence one another as each struggles to maximize its own interests. We often forget that just like in our own society, there exist currents and countercurrents. It's my hope that you will leave here today with a more complicated understanding of Islam and politics than the conventional one. I want to show you an overwhelmingly Muslim country that has its share of extremist Islamic networks, that struggles with economic instability, that has massive state corruption issues, and is yet democratic. Not only is it democratic, but Islamic groups played an active role in helping it become democratic. And they continue to ensure that it remains so. And this country is Indonesia. I believe the politics of Islam in Indonesia tells us at least two things about Islamic politics more broadly. One, Islamic groups are not inherently ideological and inflexible. There also exists a, a surprising diversity among them, surprising to us. They disagree among one another so that some have more in common with non-religious groups than with other Islamic groups. Second takeaway point, Islamic groups like other types of political groups are the products of interaction with the regime under which they exist. To grasp what Islamic groups are really up to, what their political goals are, what Islamic symbols actually represent, we need to understand the environment in which they operate. Islamic groups emerge from constant negotiation with other political forces. Islamic groups resist, adapt, and make calculated decisions. And like other types of political groups, they can come to the conclusion that democracy is not a bad way of doing things. The rest of my talk goes something like this. First, I will give you a sense of the role that Islamic groups in Indonesia have played in the recent past, especially their contribution to civil society and the country's democratization. Second, I will give an overview of Islam in Indonesian politics as it stands today and what it may suggest about where the country is heading. When the Muslim world is mentioned, Indonesia is often not our on our mental map as, at all, as Jim Falk said just now. People think of the Middle East or Afghanistan, Pakistan. When Indonesia does appear on our radar screen, the news often relates to bombings in Bali or Jakarta. You have, of course, heard about the suicide attacks um, at two luxury hotels a month ago, which killed eight people. Such news coverage fits in well with the narrative that we hear all the time about the threat of Islamic extremism at the global level. And then last year, when the Indonesian government executed three men for carrying out the 2002 bombings in Bali, what were the scenes that we saw on TV? Unruly demonstrators, religious militants, chanting and burning effigies. Again, such news fit in with our picture of Islamic intolerance simmering under the surface in a Muslim society. It's not that these events didn't happen, but they are shown to us as if they represent the larger reality, the same way the headscarf has become such a loaded emblem. Just now I mentioned Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilization thesis, which you're probably familiar with. If you recall, that is the claim that conflict will take place between culturally defined groups and nations, especially between Islam and the West, because they hold such different values about government and modernity and human rights. 
But the idea that Islam cannot coexist with democratic freedoms is, at least in Indonesia, in Indonesia simply not true. The International Foundation for Election System, for, excuse me, the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, that's just such a mouthful, a well-respected election assistance organization calls Indonesia a success story as an Islamic democracy. That's a direct quote. Freedom House, another credible authority on such matters, has ranked Indonesia among free countries for three years running, putting it alongside India and Mexico. In fact, Indonesia is the only country in all of Southeast Asia that the Freedom House considers free, as opposed to partly free or not free. This is how these observers came to their assessment. It has been 11 years since the dictatorship in Indonesia gave way to democratic practice. The country has had three sets of national parliamentary elections and three peaceful transitions of presidential power. You can see when they took place, again, on the timeline uh, that has been given to you. Islamic political parties exist side by side with secular parties. Party coalitions cross the religious divide and cabinets have been broadly inclusive. Civil society groups, many Islamic activists among them, mobilize on behalf of democracy and religious pluralism. There exists a healthy level of debate about Islam and its role in politics with a wide range of views expressed in the marketplace of ideas. The mass media are free. Indonesia is about as complex as they come. Here's a country that consists of 14,000 islands. It stretches across 3,000 miles. It has 230 million people, which makes it the fourth largest in the world in terms of population. About 700 distinct languages are spoken. The Javanese is the largest ethnic group, but almost half of the population is a mosaic of groups made up of Malays, Dayaks, Maduris, the list goes on. And each contributes no more than 3% of the population. 90% of the people call themselves Muslim, but a significant minorities of Christians, Hindus, and Buddhists exist. Indonesia is important geopolitically, straddling global sea lanes between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Indonesia also has large reserves of oil and gas, something of interest to us here in Dallas, I'm sure. Its economy is closely tied to the world economy. The area had been part of a medieval empire, it had been under Dutch rule and briefly under Japanese occupation. It had experienced a near-communist takeover. A regime backed by the military controlled the state for more than 30 years. This is a society with a convoluted history and many, many social and political interests. Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim country, as you have heard. Yet I would argue that Islam is but one factor in its politics. Let's get a better sense of its place. Islam followed the trade routes to the Southeast Asian archipelago, taking hold in the early 15th century. It grafted itself on top of Hindu-Buddhist traditions, already rooted in the, in the region. Its strongest influence was felt in the West. So if you look at your map of Indonesia, you'll, say, you'll see that Aceh in the West has the strongest Islamic culture. It was weakest in the East, hence Bali remains Hindu-Buddhist, in many parts of the outer islands has significant pockets of Christian uh, communities. This interaction created a particular indigenized version of Islam that many anthropologists consider accommodating in character. Indonesian scholars call this version of Islam traditionalist. 
Then in the early 20th century, a wave of Islamic reform and revival swept ashore, inspired by events in the Middle East. Those who followed this path, I'm sorry, it brought a new approach to Islam that sought to return to the truth of scripture. Those who followed this path could be said to be more fundamentalist, but they also embraced Western learning and science. They consciously sought to reconcile religious doctrine with modernity. Indonesians call this version of Indonesian Islam modernist. Neither strand of Islam, neither the traditionalist nor the modernist, makes for easy categorization. It is a measure of the variety of thought and practice within Islam itself. The so-called traditionalist movement came to be embodied in a group called the Naklatu Ulama, or NU for short. The so-called modernist movement was more fragmented but dominated by a group called the Muhammadiyah. By the middle of the 20th century, these groups had become the largest organizations in Indonesia. They ran numerous schools and organized community welfare activities. They also took part in politics. By the way, they are today still the largest Islamic groups in the world, claiming a combined membership of 70 million. The first defining point of political Islam in Indonesia that deserves highlight is during the anti-colonial movement in the 1940s. Various groups were working to create an independent state free from Dutch rule. The NU and the Muhammadiyah wanted a sovereign Indonesia to have an Islamic basis. But they faced opposition from other political, part, other political leaders. These leaders argued that the best hope forward lay in unifying Indonesia's ethnic, linguistic, and religious groups. They embraced a secular position as one that would be acceptable to most of these groups. So Sharia didn't appear anywhere in Indonesia's constitution. The Islamic groups were bitter, but they thought they would soon win elections and bring about the change that they wanted. In the first post-independence elections in 1955, the electoral divided clearly down the middle between Islamic and secular parties. This result surprised the Islamic groups. The Islamic vote share itself was also divided evenly between the modernists and the traditionalists. This division accounts for the inability of Islamic groups to seize the political initiative. Why couldn't they get their act together? It was partly theological differences between the two, but, and I argue this in my dissertation, the reasons also had sociological roots. The traditionalists and modernists served different constituencies. Broadly speaking, traditionalists had the support of the Javanese and rural dwellers, while modernists had the support of non-Javanese and urban residents. Islam could not bridge their divergent political and economic interests. We tend to assume that Islam is an overwhelmingly powerful ideology that unifies its faithful, and yet this instance shows that it's not always the case. In 1957, the first president, Sukarno, suspended democracy. His dictatorship proved disastrous, characterized by economic incompetence and social chaos. Now into the 1960s. In a coup, General Suharto deposed Sukarno. As president, Suharto controlled the government for 33 years. He had the backing of the military and developed a powerful party machine. The government effectively marginalized many groups that might have resisted it, including Islamic groups. The New Order government, as it was, as it was called, instituted not merely a secular government, but a secularist government. That is, it took a tough stand on anyone or any group that sought to advance religious interests 
in the political arena. Pre-existing Islamic political parties were forcibly fused into a single opposition party and it was given a very un-Islamic name. It was called the United Development Party. Tightly controlled, it paid lip service to Islamic representation. The political discourse of the new order repeatedly warned of the extremism of the left, that's communism, and the extremism of the right, that is Islamic fundamentalism. These twin threats, it claimed, could undermine Indonesia's territorial integrity and obstruct its economic development. Economic growth and political order were sacrosanct during Suharto's rule. They justified, they justified severe limits on civil rights and all manner of political controls. I should also add here that the US government, viewing the world through Cold War lenses, Cold War lenses of the time, strongly backed Suharto. The new order government used its economic success to justify its harsh policies. For a long time, if you wore a headscarf or some other manifestation of strong Islamic faith, you could be denied scholarships and a government job. You might take part in a religious study group, but one hint of criticism against the state, including its approach to religious affairs and your persona non grata. But like many authoritarian regimes, repression was never total. An autonomous space existed in civil society, and the most active organizations were Islamic in nature. The Muhammadiyah and the NU retreated into the so-called cultural sphere allowed to them. President Suharto tolerated the Islamic groups as long as they focused on obviously non-political activities. The Muhammadiyah and the NU walked a fine line. Nonetheless, they managed to become the mainstay of civil society, carving out a space independent of the state. The Islamic organizations focused on their religious schools and their community-oriented activities. These ran the gamut from local health clinics to farmer co-ops. They each maintained a vast national network. They had ties to international NGOs. They functioned as voluntary associations, intermediate structures that kept religious followers socially engaged. They offered an alternative model for how citizens might be organized in an otherwise state-dominated society. Apart from the NU and the Muhammadiyah, civil society in Indonesia also gained strength from a significant number of small but dynamic independent Islamic groups. In the early 1980s, signs of more intense Islamic piety emerged in Indonesia. Mosque attendance went up. Economic development and rising literacy made formal religious study accessible to more Indonesians. The state, ironically, also contributed to this rising religiosity. At the local level, government policies were more tolerant towards Islamic practice than the official rhetoric. Officials saw religion as an outlet for energies otherwise directed at the state. The relative freedom of religious space compared to political space attracted many activists cynical of politics. These groups were heterogeneous. They emphasized different aspects of Islamic doctrine for perspectives on economic, solving economic and social problems. The government's pretense at political inclusiveness, it held regular national elections that were more or less rigged, pushed would-be politicians into the ranks of civil society. These individuals shared an animosity towards the government for its antagonism against legitimate Islamic political expression. They resented the military's tendency to tar all opposition as Islamic radicals and then use them to justify the need for dictatorial control. Many Islamic groups became anti-military and anti-authoritarian. 
Frequently, that translated into support for democracy. Another important intersection of Islam and politics took place in the late 1980s. President Suharto began to recognize the power of Islamic civil society. As, at this time, a split between him and military leaders inspired him to seek new allies among Islamic actors. He projected a more pious image and oversaw the formation of an association of Islamic intellectuals called ICMI, or ICMI. Suharto's plan was to draw on a sector that he himself had sidelined, those conservative Muslims who saw themselves as the heirs of the Islamic groups that had tried to make Indonesia an Islamic Republic at its founding. The NU, then led by a cleric called Abdurrahman Wahid, came out strongly against Ijmi. Interestingly, the discourse that the NU adopted was a pluralist one. It accused the government of favoring one religion above the others in violation of its own secular principles. The NU then openly allied itself with the, with the secular opposition party headed by Megawati Sukarno Putri, the daughter of the first president, Sukarno. Until then, most power brokers and observers assumed that the cleavage between Islamic and non-Islamic actors could not be breached. Their alliance opened up the potential for a secular Islamic coalition against the new order government. The NU's move was not only strategic, it had a well-grounded philosophical basis and shaped the development of Indonesian Islam. Abdul Rahman Wahid defined what he called civil Islam as opposed to political Islam, which he articulated to be fully compatible with liberal democracy and religious inclusion. Other Islamic intellectuals, including those from the modernist camp, also spoke out in favor of democracy. Nikolish Majid, another widely respected Muslim intellectual, famously said, Islam, yes. Islamic parties, no. The state of politics in Islam in the mid to late 1990s roughly looked like this. On one side, Islamic civil society groups aligned against the regime, with a number of them showing a clear willingness to work with secular political groups. Many embraced the language of democracy and civil rights. On the other side, other religious actors who wanted to integrate Islamic principles into the state. They were not necessarily anti-democratic, but they did think state policy should privilege Islamists in a Muslim society. In fact, some of them argued that a democracy that reflected majoritarian ideals should provide for stronger Islamic influence in the state because most, most Muslims were self-declared, most Indonesians were self-declared Muslims. This type of debate is perhaps not so different from the debate in this country about the extent to which the US is founded on Christian values and how far public policy should reflect that. The Asian financial crisis precipitated President Suharto's downfall in 1998. The Indonesian economy shrank 14%, the biggest contraction by any single country in a year since the Great Depression. Other factors set the stage, widespread corruption, cronyism, nepotism. The regime transition from Suharto's dictatorship was not easy. Many of you might remember the ugly urban riots that set Jakarta burning in 1998 when the persons and property of Chinese Indonesians became particular targets. Violent conflicts elsewhere between Muslims and Christians created a sense that chaos reigned. Suharto's deputy BJ Habibi, who became president, became president, but he lacked credibility. Anything seemed possible. Habibi was believed to favor Ichmi, 
that association of, in, of Muslim intellectuals, and so some feared a hardening of policy in favor of Islam. Others feared that the military would take over. Yet others entertained the possibility of a state collapse with Indonesia breaking up like the Soviet Union. But a well-organized pro-democracy movement with many Islamic activists within it kept up public pressure. It helped to ensure free elections in 1999. The results mirrored the 1955 elections in surprising ways, with the electorate again seemingly divided between Islamic and secular parties. But a closer look revealed crucial change. Two of the parties with Islamic leaders, one of them Abdurrahman Wahid, adopted religiously inclusive platforms. All but one of the five biggest parties were secular parties or pluralist Islamic parties. When I say pluralist Islamic, I mean their leaders consistently reached out to non-Muslim groups, their platform did not favor the institutionalization of Sharia, and their members and voters extended beyond a Muslim base. Sharia, as you know, is Islamic law. These parties won about 75% of the vote between them. The overtly pro-Sharia Islamists together won less than 10% of the vote. According to the rules of that time, legislators chose the president and they agreed on Abdurrahman Wahid. When he lost a vote of confidence in 2001, Megawati Sukarno Putri became president without incident, despite earlier talk over the issue of her gender. Since then, Indonesians have gone to the polls twice again in countrywide legislative elections in 2004 and in April last year. There have been two direct presidential elections, including one last month. Each of these elections was considered free and fair and largely unmarred by violence. So that is the historical context. I have suggested to you that Islamic groups in Indonesia are diverse and ideologically flexible. They're fully capable, capable of reaching out to secular groups and enriching civil society. As a result of the dynamics of authoritarian rule, some of them came to embrace democracy as the best way to protect their own political and religious interests and freedoms. What about the politics of Islam today? Democratic practice is never a straightforward process. What are some countercurrents that might turn the tide? Where is Indonesia heading? Indonesia remains bogged down by economic instability, poverty, poor governance, and corruption. These issues might yet undermine progress in Indonesia. They could open the door to Islamic radicalism or another type of strongman dictatorship. My sense, though, is that this is becoming less and less likely. Let's consider the political cross-currents. Islamic militancy exists in Indonesia. We saw that with the recent bombings in Jakarta. But those who support a democratic, but those who support a theocratic Islamic government and are willing to use force to achieve it are very much on the periphery. And the state has steadily gained strength against them. Jama Islamiyah, an extremist Islamic group, still exists, especially in the outer islands where the state is weaker. It was responsible for the multiple bomb attacks in Bali and Jakarta between 2002 and 2005. But the arrests of top leaders have seriously weakened the group. It has no ties to any mainstream Islamic parties. The most recent attacks in Jakarta are attributed to a small splinter group, highly dangerous but hardly likely to topple the government. At the level of government, Matters of Islam are open to contestation, not surprising in a nascent democracy seeking a new social equilibrium. In 2002, a few Islamic political parties received, revived the proposal to
to make a constitutional amendment that would require the state to enforce Sharia on Muslim citizens. It generated huge controversy, but the effort was soundly defeated in Parliament. After failing at the national level, Islamists then appeared to change tactics. In the last few years, some district-level governments have passed a number of local ordinances based on Sharia. These ordinances usually pertain to pornography, gambling, alcohol, and prostitution. Although they generated much debate, they have been instituted only in about 10% of the country. In fact, the number of new ordinances reached a peak in 2003, six years ago, and no ordinance has been passed in the last two years. A number have been rolled back. Civil, so civil society activists actively mobilized against them, arguing they impinged on the rights of women and non-Muslims. Again, these activists included Islamic activists. Some observers think that the publicity given to these religious ordinances actually caused a backlash that hurt the performance of Islamic parties in the most recent parliamentary elections. The parliamentary elections in April this year show Indonesians continue to reject pro-Sharia political parties. As you can see from the party spectrum on the handout with the glossary, the PBB, a party that favors an Islamic republic and previously held a handful of seats in parliament, was completely left out in the cold. The PPP ran on a vague platform of promoting Sharia without really saying what it meant. It clearly hoped to appeal to religious conservatives while remaining acceptable to non-religious voters. It also lost ground compared to 2004. The PKS, or Prosperous Justice Party, had been the party to watch. It attracts young, well-educated, observant Muslims and modeled itself on the ruling party in Turkey and to some extent Hamas. Of all the parties, it has paid the most attention to building a rational party model that emphasized growing a modern grassroots network. It expected to double its vote share, but did little more than maintain its previous 7%. Its leaders said they wanted to apply Islamic concepts like equality, rule of law, and social justice in government. But even though the PKS stressed moral reform and clean government in its campaign rather than Sharia per se, it failed to extend its reach. Surveys of voters earlier this year showed that fewer than 15% of them considered religion a factor in choosing a political party, and less than 1% thought that religious issues were pressing. In contrast, the biggest group of respondents said they would choose a party on the basis of their performance in econo on economic issues and in providing community services. Unfortunately for overtly Islamic parties, Voters also said they thought Islamic parties lacked concrete platforms and would not promote prosperity. Muslim voters in Indonesia are clearly pragmatic rather than ideological. The current president is Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, a former general who has declared his belief in religious inclusiveness. He was formally re-elected last month. His vice president is Bodiono, a technocrat with no party affiliation. In his re-election bid, Yudo Yono dropped his former vice president, a man considered an observant Muslim acceptable to Islamic voters. That he did so suggests that the president no longer thought it necessary to be seen to reach out to conservative religious voters. Not only did Yudo Yono win re-election, but he did so with more than 60% of the vote. According to polls, 
Yuriyono's appeal lay in his ability to get things done. He pursues populist policies and has a reputation for fighting corruption. If the U.S. is in a post-racial political era with Obama's election, Indonesia may be said to be in a post-religious era. Women politicians have done pretty well in Indonesia. A record 102 seats, or 18% of parliamentary seats, went to women. This compares with 13% in the U.S. Congress. Let me end by going back to the story of the headscarf. In Indonesia under Suharto, everyday Islamic expression sometimes developed into a form of political resistance. For some, wearing a headscarf came to be a political statement. It represented pushback against a state that claimed it could define where religion belonged. And not only religion, but other aspects of life that fall within the rubric of civil rights. The Suharto government hid behind secularism to justify authoritarian control. By demonstrating an Islamic identity, Indonesian activists were showing defiance. In the view of the opposition, freedom of religious expression did not contradict democracy. Rather, Islam was an integral part of the struggle for political rights and freedoms. Indonesia illustrates two important points. First, Islamic groups are not always ideological. They can coexist, even promote democracy. Secondly, like all political groups, Islamic or not, putting them in context helps us better recognize what they are about. We do ourselves a disservice when we impose a civilizational perspective on our view of Islamic politics. Frankly, the world is more interesting when we realize that there are more complex narratives than the one of Islam versus the West. Thank you. Questions, discussion? And we do have a microphone if we need it. Excuse me, if I may, uh, two questions. One is, what country is Indonesia's closest ally? And secondly, why haven't we in the West seen more um, strength by the moderate uh, senior leadership of Islam parties to counter the terrorism, take a position that terrorism is anti-Islamic? Uh, Uh, Islam is a uh, founding member of ASEAN, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations. So it is, it is uh, closely integrated into the region through that organization. Uh, Indonesia has very close ties with the United States. The United States is the uh, second largest, uh, I'm sorry, it's the second largest market, that's right, the United States is the second largest market for Indonesian exports after Japan. Uh, and, in, and the United States has closed military ties with uh, Indonesia at both the dialogue level as well as the operational level. As for why we haven't heard more um, about the Indonesian government fighting terrorism in Indonesia, personally I think it's the fault of the mass media as much as anything else. Um, I think there is a dominant narrative in this country uh, that, that says that that has a certain view of Islamic politics. Uh, in fact, the Indonesian government has moved quite swiftly uh, and decisively against uh, terrorists uh, in the country. Uh, as I mentioned in my talk, 
Jamaat Islamiya, which is a, a group that some believe has ties to Al-Qaeda, uh, has been seriously weakened in the last uh, few years. Uh, the International Crisis Group, which is a group that studies terrorism in Southeast Asia, says that it really is no longer a serious threat. Uh, the, the threats might lie in splinter groups like the one that, um, that, that was involved in the bombing recently, uh, last month. Um, but the Indonesian government itself actually has come out very strongly against terrorists. Now having said that, they've moved, they've moved very decisively, decisively in operational terms. At the same time, there has been some sensitivity about how strongly, um, how strongly they should... Well, we have to see it in the context of, of the U.S. war against terrorism. The, 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 the war against terrorism um, launched by the U.S. has made Muslims in many countries in the world, including Indonesia, very defensive. Um, and so the Indonesian government has had to, I think, use very careful language when it moves against these Islamic extremists. Um, they, they, they have tried to distance um, Islamic groups, both, both uh, Islamists, both Islamic um, groups in civil society as well as the Indonesian government itself uh, have distanced themselves from terrorist organizations, but they've had to do so in a way that doesn't further uh, contribute to the radicalization uh, of Islam in the country um, because of that context of the, of the global war on, on terrorism. So I think that's why we kind of see, we, we, in, we in the West, partly because I think of, the, of the, um, the black and white images that we tend to see through the media, we, we tend to think that Indonesia hasn't moved decisively against um, terrorists, and I think that's just not true. Thank you. In the spectrum of political uh, parties, you go from secular to religious, but there are lots of other spectrums as well, economic, uh, how much the state should be involved in everything. How does that enter into this whole picture? The reality at the moment is that political parties in Indonesia have not really distinguished themselves along other spectrums. Um, the main, the, the, the secular parties claim that they are populist parties, just what all of them do, that they are for the poor, uh, that they are, uh, that they, that, that they are for the poor uh, and, 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 and the otherwise disadvantaged. Um, and the Islamic parties also offer uh, the same policies, but couched in more Islamic terms. So, you know, we, we are Muslims, we must take care of the poor, we believe in social justice, and so on. Um, political parties in Indonesia are still very much going through a transition, coming out of the dictatorship uh, under Soharto, where they were not allowed to define, um, they were not allowed to define themselves uh, politically. Uh, and so they're really still finding their ways. So the short answer is, they're really, at the moment, um, is in some other axis by which they define themselves. I have a question. We, we hear so much about the role that Saudi Arabia has played in 
we hear so much about the role that Saudi Arabia has played in promoting Islam and in, in, say, certain countries of Africa, also providing infrastructure support, foreign assistance. What role has Saudi Arabia played in Indonesia's um, uh, economic as- uh, assistance as well as maybe with uh, education and madrasas and so forth? It has played some role, but not as much as one might think. Um, there have always been close ties between uh, Muslims in Indonesia and Saudi Arabia, uh, just because of the holy places in Saudi Arabia. Uh, a number of the Muslim intellectuals have trained in Saudi Arabia. They've attended universities there. Um, and there has been an influx of money from, Indo- from Saudi Arabia into Indonesia to build mosques uh, and schools. But now when we think of Saudi Arabia or Islam in Saudi Arabia, we tend to think of Wahhabism and we tend to think of sort of a slightly more radical um, version of Islam that comes out of there. Somehow though, by the time they get to Indonesia, because of the particular mix of, uh, of uh, the, the particular versions of Islam that are indigenous to Indonesia, Wahhabism hasn't really taken hold. Uh, we do have madrasas that, in Indonesia that are Wahhabi, uh, but by and large, Indonesian Muslims through the NU and through the Muhammadiyah have been quite protective about their own sense of what Indonesian Islam is about. And they do define themselves against Arab Islam. They do tend to say when, when you meet Muslim leaders in Indonesia, very often they say, look, we're Indonesians. We have our understanding of Islam that is quite different from the Arab understanding of Islam. Uh, and while they're open to, to funding from Saudi Arabia, it doesn't seem to have um, uh, moved Indonesian Islam towards Wahhabism. Except in Aceh, perhaps? You know, even Aceh is an interesting uh, story, and I'm glad you, you mentioned it. Because Aceh, as I did mention in my remarks, uh, has traditionally been more Islamic uh, than the rest of Indonesia. Um, let me see, how do I tell this story in a short way? Um, Aceh has been granted um, special autonomy, uh, in part because for a long time, for decades in fact, it was fighting an insurgency against the Indonesian government, against the central government. Uh, and uh, because Aceh just did not see itself as part of Indonesia. Indonesia, present day Indonesia is a creation of, of, of Dutch rule. You know, there's no, there was no historical entity called Indonesia. Um, and when, when the central government made, uh, came to a peace agreement with the insurgents in Aceh, the central government decided that one way that they were going to pacify the insurgents was to give them, uh, was to allow them to institute Sharia uh, in, in, in the province. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the insurgents themselves were not necessarily all that keen on Sharia. Um, but, the, but, but the central government figured that you know, that was a way to, to uh, allow them to sort of assert their, their identity, but within this greater entity called Indonesia. And so it was a way, they, they saw it as a, as a sort of accommodation. And it has actually made um, Aceh 
more Islamic than it really was to begin with. Um, it's, it ended up setting up, because of this agreement, uh, Aceh ended up setting up a, a vice squad. Uh, it's gone around, this vice squad has gone around, you know, um, picking up people for supposed illicit relations between uh, non, unmarried couples and so on. Um, and, 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 and you read reports about how some of the Achenese are actually saying, look, we are Islamic and we do have a sense of what, and we do have a strong Muslim identity, but that didn't necessarily, necessarily meant that we wanted Sharia. Uh, so it's sort of this weird dynamic where, where you know, Islamization um, is obviously sort of not merely something that grows, necessarily grows up from the grassroots, but is sometimes also um, the, the product of sort of complicated public policy. Those independent uh, urges from parts of other parts of Indonesia, how does the central government use Islam or any other political organization to try to keep those independence movements or th urges in check? I'm thinking East Timor was an ugly situation, and I'm wondering if Indonesia is facing any more of those. There is, apart from Aceh, which, was, which has been more or less uh, resolved, there is a, um, an ongoing insurgency, low-level insurgency in Irian Jaya, which is far to the east. Uh, and uh, the issues there haven't really been um, Islamic as such. Um, Irian Jaya does have pockets of, um, of Christian communities, but I, I don't see that emerging as, as uh, Islam being used in, in that conflict. Uh, with East Timor, religion, again, I don't think really came into play as such, although obviously the Timorese are uh, cath mostly Catholic. Um, that had, those, those, issues, those conflicts had more to do with um, Indonesia's sense of, of, uh, of nation, the idea that, or the central government's idea that, that, they, that these areas are integral parts of Indonesia uh, and that you know, they, they, they could not be allowed to secede. Um, now, having said that, uh, there, are, there continue to be flare-ups between Muslim groups and Christian groups in some of the uh, outer islands. Um, and some say that they are the work of militant Islamic groups um, creating trouble. Some say that they are um, the work of the military itself. Uh, causing trouble in order to justify, as they did under Suharto, in order to justify uh, tight control. Um, those exist, but they have not, um, at least in recent years, they have not uh, led to the sort of uh, conflagration that observers have been worried about uh, when, when, Suharto, uh, when the Suharto regime was in transition. How does the Israeli-Palestinian conflict play into Indonesian politics? In domestic politics? Yes. If I remember right, the uh, Indonesia at the moment does not recognize Israel. It did recognize Israel for a short time when Abdurrahman Wahid, the, uh, the leader of NU who became president uh, in uh, 
between 1999 and 2001. Uh, and full diplomatic relations were actually restored at that time. And then he fell and, and there was a backlash against that and, 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 and uh, relations were downgraded again. Um, Muslims in Indonesia follow the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict closely, uh, as do Muslims all over the world. But I think, and again it's consistent with what I said about the sense of Indonesian Islam versus Middle East Islam, they really do recognize that it's something that happens far away, uh, that there are geopolitical issues involved there that uh, are not purely Islamic in nature. You know, that, that uh, there are a lot of other factors other than Islam at play there. And so they do generally tend to be sympathetic to the Palestinian plight, um, not surprising. But, but, you, don't, um, but you, you don't see them, uh, you know, you, you don't see huge demonstrations every time, you know, uh, Israel does something, say, uh, in Palestine. And good morning. My name is uh, Rudy Himawan. Uh, I'm happen to be a member of the PKS in Indonesia, and uh, I'm uh, glad to be here this morning. Last night I got the email from one of uh, the the members, so I uh, try to to attend this uh, gathering. It's really uh, 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 happy to be here and glad to listen to the lecture from the doctor. Um, yeah, a uh, few things that I would like to add. Um, uh, in this uh, last uh, election, only two parties that uh, uh, got more vote compared to the previous one. One of them is the uh, Democratic Party that's belong to the president. Uh, and then the second one is the PKS. So PKS actually increased the, uh, 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 the vote for this year only by 1%, which is a, a Democratic Party like three times. And other parties... Uh, uh, they goes down, um, and uh, the reason for this, I believe, is uh, like also mentioned, is probably that um, PKS is not uh, the extreme. Uh, if you compare in the 2004, Jakarta's parliamentary election was uh, won by PKS, but uh, you do not see any big change towards Sharia or something like it in in Jakarta. So it shows that uh, uh, PKS. It's really for clean government. It's um, uh, for uh, social justice or something like that. And regarding the, the Palestinian issues, probably sometimes you see that the, uh, the PKS people demonstrate in front of the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, embassy, things like that. It is uh, because um, what we want is just uh, a justice uh, uh, in in the in the area, in the sense that we we put balance uh, between what uh, uh, Palestinians should get and then the Israeli uh, uh, should get, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really glad that uh, Doctor uh, uh, elaborated about the, about the, this uh, political party in Indonesia, and if uh, any of you would like to uh, get the the a PKS woman political uh, speaker, probably I can I can help to uh, to brought here so that you get the uh, like first hand information from woman uh, politician. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Um, 
the media version of America's role in the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, the media's version in Indonesia. Is it real anti-American? How is it being described in Indonesia? I would say that it is um, fairly anti-American, as you would expect, uh, given their uh, sense of sympathy with the Muslim population. Um, but having said that, uh, as you know, of course, Obama has uh, personal ties to Indonesia. Uh, and I think since his, and he is just wildly popular in Indonesia. Uh, and I think that since uh, his election, uh, Indonesians are, are seeing Iraq in a very, diff in a very different way. Um, I think that um, they have, uh, they're waiting patiently uh, for, for the policy in Iraq to change. Uh, and um, uh, you, you, you just don't see, uh, you, you don't see, again, with what, consistent with what I said earlier, you just don't see sort of loud um, militant reaction against uh, U.S. policy in Iraq the same way that you might, uh, you, that we see them in the rest of the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's just not the same. In our last, last question. Uh, when, I, uh, when I lived in Indonesia from 1975 to 78, uh, we had a few uh, Chinese um, employees in, in the company I worked for. They were uh, obliged by uh, custom or by law, I'm not sure which, to adopt uh, Muslim names. It was also considered a very bad form, uh, if not illegal, to speak Chinese in public. Uh, I wonder if that relationship has moderated uh, nowadays. Uh, you're right. They were required to adopt indigenous names. Uh, I'm not sure if they were necessarily required to adopt Muslim names. Uh, my understanding is that they were, uh, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is that they were required to adopt non-Chinese names. Uh, so for instance, Suharto is not a Muslim name. Suharto is, an, is a Javanese name. And when he when he um, re, re, uh, remade himself as a more pious Muslim, he took on the uh, prefix Muhammad uh, so that he could appear more, more Islamic. Um, as for how, as for relations with Chinese Indonesians today, I think they have relaxed a great deal uh, since the, 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 even compared to the 1990s and certainly compared to the 70s. Uh, you do see uh, many Chinese Indonesians today with uh, a Chinese name. Uh, in fact, a lot of um, Chinese Indonesian athletes uh, carry Chinese names. Um, so it, there, there has definitely been a, a, a relaxation in, their, in that relationship. Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that, you know, old tensions don't exist. 
Chinese Indonesians make up something like 4% of the population, but they are believed to control something like uh, 40 or 60% of the economy uh, because they are very active in, in, uh, uh, in, in business. Uh, and so there's still that tendency to, to, to see Chinese Indonesians as not, uh, not quite us, that they are foreign, that they, ha that they protect their own interests. Uh, and that actually also spills over into Indonesia's relationship with Singapore, because Singapore is Chinese-dominated. Uh, and so there's a tendency to see Singapore as, as um, to see the Indonesian, uh, to see the Chinese Indonesians as, as um, somehow working with Singapore uh, to the detriment of uh, local Indonesians. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.